0: Um, So if you would, I would like you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 3. Hopefully most of you have part of this memorized. This is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. We touched upon it last Sunday, but I want to dive in deeper. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. May God add to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Worldviews, they're complicated, very complex. Uh, They are so individualized that if I was actually to probe into any one of your worldviews, even though you're a Christian, and you're relying on the Bible for your worldview, if I were to get down to the components of it, where you came to those conclusions, we would find great divergence when we get to the bottom of things. Probably not one of us actually hold the exact same worldview at its very roots. In fact, you'll notice this if you ever read a theologian, enough. They will get a little sideways after a while because they'll keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And after they get so deep, it's like they have to start making some assumptions about things. And when they do, that's when things get different. So our worldview, it is sort of hidden within the soul's complexity. And the youth and I, we've been talking about this for months now, the soul's complexity, how it has nine different aspects to it, or what we call abilities, uh, your five senses plus the mind, the will, the emotions, and the spirit. And then we talked about the five different pursuits of the soul, how the soul is actually trying to accomplish something in its life. And we've already looked at uh, three of them. We're now finishing up our fourth on worldviews, being one of those pursuits of the soul. Now, what we looked at when we did that diagram last time with the triangle is that our worldviews are pretty obvious from our actions. We know from our actions that we have certain worldviews that are driving our behavior right now. Uh, One of the things I was thinking about was the idea that we look at our phones a lot I don't know why people are looking at their phones. You know, everyone has a different reason. You know, some people are just checking the time. Some people are checking on an important message. Some people are taking notes or looking up something else. Um, I remember asking a kid once, uh, about five years ago, why do you keep checking that? Because he was just, it looked almost like obsessive compulsive behavior. I mean, it's just constant, constant, constant. He goes, oh, I just like to, you know, entertain myself in the down moments. I go, what do you mean entertain yourself? And he was just watching these little video clips, little things. I go, what's what's the deal with that? Why are you so into these little moments of entertainment? He goes, because my life is so stressful. He was 12. (laughs) You laugh. Some of our 12-year-olds are under a great deal of stress. I said, what do you have to be so stressful about? What's going on? He goes, well, you know, just work. I go, well, yeah, but work is good, right? I'm I'm thinking from a biblical perspective. He goes, no, work sucks. My parents hate work. They complain about it all the time. They do nothing but gripe about work. And now I have to work. And i will trying to escape from that work. And I go, oh, if you were to stop long enough and actually analyze his worldview, he's actually made work, which is something given to us by God, a huge negative. It's supposed to be a positive, to be productive, to be purposeful, to be useful. And he's made entertainment, which is sort of the opposite of all that, the invigorator good. If we were to explore both of those, we would look down and find out, what is the worldview? Where is this coming from? Here's the behavior. You're saying that work is bad. That's your statement and your belief. Where did that value come from to cause that statement to come out of your mouth? And then behind those values, what assumptions led to that value, that work is bad? You could do the same thing with uh, the idea that entertaining yourself relieves stress, when in reality, it probably causes a little more stress. Anyways, this is how we get down that. So, if you're wondering, how do we actually even get out these worldviews? Just look at your behavior. I was telling the youth last Friday that my phone has this app that just appeared and it was monitoring my usage of my phone. You know, how many hours or time, minutes I was spending on whatever, right? And so, it's interesting how it broke it all up. You can kind of do that with your life. You know, what things are you focused on? What things are you giving your time to? That probably is being driven by a belief system which has a value system that causes those beliefs, which has some assumptions about life, that if you were to get at the root of it, you could actually pull it up and say, wow, is this biblical? Is this coming from God or my culture? Is this something that was forced upon me or something I chose? So a way to get at it. Anyways, today what I want to look at is this individualization of worldviews for the Christian is supposed to be customized. Do I dare walk forward? It's supposed to be customized, the Christian worldview. It's supposed to be custom to the likeness of Christ. In fact, a Christian worldview is about conformity. It's about seeing things the way God made them. It's about taking on life the way God created you to take on that life. And so there is some conformity we're asking for. We're asking you to look hard at Scripture. Now, there's a lot of freedom within those boundaries, but you got to know what the boundaries are first. And it's sad that most Christians do not know their Bibles, I don't know how many, I wouldn't want to do a show of hands, but how many of you have actually even read your entire Bible all the way through? Don't do a show of hands. Don't. Don't. They're judging you right now. They're just looking at you going, ah, teacher's pet. It's okay, I like Leonard. He can be my teacher's pet. But think about it. I mean, how many of you have actually read the Bible? Could you, like right now, take a book of the Bible and in your mind sort of outline it? Are there verses that you're depending on every day? Has the scripture really become your life the way Christ intended it to be? So what I want to look at today is three essential views. We have to have a worldview about God. We have to have a worldview about the universe. And we have to have a worldview about man. So I want to pull out these views. So starting with verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So our view of God, a God who can be trusted. So the first question to ask is, is he your Lord? You say, Well, yeah, of course he's your Lord, But is he? Is he your Lord? People come to Christ for two reasons, right? Either because they fall in love with Christ and they want him, they want to know him, they want to be wherever he is, they want to hear whatever he has to say, be involved in whatever he's doing. Or they come to Christ because they have another God they're trying to get to and they think they can use Christ to get to it. I want my marriage to work, I want my kids to be right, I want to fix our country. I want to fix whatever, my job. And we're using Christ to get there. So is Christ your Lord? Because if he's not, you're probably not trusting him with all your heart. Your heart's divided. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. When you do, you find that God's much bigger than you realize, more than when you started. As soon as you start trusting him, you realize this God has way more potential than you originally assumed. Your first worldview of him. How much of your life is trusting in Him? So this is how it works. We grow through these, what we like to call, trust events. A trust event. An event in your life that comes along where you're almost forced to trust in God. Where you're sort of put out there where you actually have to say, God, if not for you, I'm dead. If not for you, I have no hope. If not for you, I lose everything. These are trust events. And once you put your trust in God, not only does he manage the event, but he speaks to you in ways that reveals himself, and he becomes much bigger. In fact, those of you who've done a few of these, you realize, wait, I don't have to wait for a big event to come. I can just do this while I'm driving to the store. I can go with Christ to the grocery store. I can see the world through his eyes and trust him that this will be a religious experience. That I will meet Christ in the aisles of the grocery store, in the eyes of the clerk, in the person parked next to me in the car as I'm waiting for them to go by. And Christ becomes Lord even in those moments. He becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So how big is your God? I have a video I'd like to show you to kind of illustrate the bigness of God, uh, but I don't know if it'll work because apparently the internet's down, so we're doing it from a phone. Are we good? All right, let's give it a go. I wanted to see that video, not because of the science and all that, but the idea that your God is big. Our God is so big. We look for Him to help in the big things in life, but He's so big that He even takes care of the minute things in life. The idea that He was fine-tuning electromagnetic forces at the very beginning to actually allow the universe to develop is extraordinary. And the idea that we think He can't help in certain areas of our life is extraordinary. So, trusting God. How big is your God? Can you trust Him with all your heart? Really, can you give God your entire life? Can you throw yourself upon Him, following His ways, trusting in Him for everything? Now think about it. This God was so intimate in His care for us. He even took on a human heart. Depended on it for life as He moved among us. Attention to the macro and the micro is our God's business, and he's done it extremely well. 66 books and letters testify to this. God's mouthpieces tell us about the very beginning and the very end. Why don't we trust in it? Why don't we give ourselves to this knowledge? Why don't we walk in these ways? What is your view of God? Is he really trustworthy in all things? You're growing in your faith from year to year because you've actually taken the Bible and done what it said. It's hard to see in the day-to-day. Growth is slow. But after year after year, you should be able to look back and see a steady growth in your life where you can say, God got bigger here. God got bigger at that time. I trust him more. I rely on him more because of these life events There should be in your course of life what the ancients used to do, all these little monuments to God where you've encountered God, these rocks with oil poured on top of them. This should be glittering your life. And if they're not, is it possibly because you're not trusting in God? You're relying on your ability, your worldview of things to manipulate it and control the environment around you. Is that how you're playing this out? It's no wonder that verse 5, the the second part of it says, do not lean on your own understanding. There's a better way, a better, a surer way. Look at verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. What are your ways and paths? Are they Christian? Now, they don't Christian just because you're a Christian and they have your ways and paths. They're Christian because Christ gave them to you. They are Christ-like in their ways, in those paths. I want to look at a universe now, the universe of trustworthy laws. I want you to think of the context of Proverbs. Uh, Solomon's writing this because he loves his son. He gives his son his very best advice. He's not telling him, don't do what I did. He's saying, this is my very best advice. The moral path, the straight path is God's path. Follow that path, cling to that, give your whole heart to it. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, he's not telling his son, tip your hat to God as you go about your business. Acknowledge him, you know, just say, hey, God, I'm about to go about my business. He's not talking about that. He's basically saying, in all your ways, choose God's ways. In all your ways, have a verse that's directing you, have a passage, have an insight from God that's calling you forward. Scripture points the way for all of God's paths. And this is why we memorize Scripture. People always ask me, how do you know so much Scripture? (laughs) There's a lot of Scripture that comes out of my mouth, especially when I'm preaching. I never memorized it. I lived it. I was crying out to God with that Scripture. I was desperate with that Scripture. I was finding the realization of my joy in that Scripture. Life was making sense through that Scripture. If you don't memorize Scripture, guys, I really, I believe this truly. If you don't have scripture verses that have so rocked your world, that have so guided your paths, become your paths, as though the words themselves manifest themselves before you, if that is not your association with scripture, you're probably not following Christ. You're probably following some sort of ideas about Christ. Things that you've taken from Sunday school, this sounds pretty good, I'm going to make it up, I'm going to make up my own worldview. Christ is very specific when he says, I do everything my father has said. I do everything he has said. And if he had to do that, what gives you the right to go ahead and leave the words of Christ and come up with your own plan? These markers in our life really only come about when God's been allowed to work and he tends to work through his word. We are supposed to be a people of the book, but we become a people who's familiar with the book not the scriptures themselves. The straight paths are the words of God. They're kind of like the ocean currents. I was studying the ocean currents and trying to get ready for this. It's fascinating. You could actually, without sail, without propulsion at all, navigate the oceans on the ocean currents if you know when they're moving, which direction they're moving, how they're flowing. God has put this in our universe, this moral code, if you will, that we're supposed to be walking in within those boundaries. There is some freedom for your own decisions, your own choices, but it's within the boundaries of those scriptures. You gotta know the scriptures first. Let me me see if I can highlight this a little bit deeper. We live in a moral universe with trustworthy laws. Here's a question. We all have to answer this question. Are human minds sufficiently equipped and qualified in and of themselves to be the final judges of what is right, proper, good, and true? Or do we need help from a supernatural source? For the Christian, God's word is life, and it provides the boundaries we need to live in. For the non-Christian, they make up decisions about laws, families. I mean, things that really affect everyone's life. Businesses, personal relationships, politics, play, rest. And they get them from all kinds of different sources at different times. And they're all in conflict with each other. New sciences, new laws, new religions are always coming up. And whoever the flavor of the month is, they get to have their say. And people are running here, there, and there. Thousands of choices. And God's saying, silence yourself. Focus on my word. Come back within my boundaries. The idea of boundaries can sound a bit limiting. I admit that. Sounds enslaving. If you are an omniscient being, if you're a finite being, dependent on a very fine tuned biosphere to live in, you're thankful for those boundaries. They actually provide and protect your life. The Christian's greatest freedom comes from submitting to God's laws. Sounds sounds counterintuitive, but it's not. You have to operate within the structure God has provided. It's like driving down the freeway without lines. Imagine what would happen if you took the lines out of the freeway. like driving in China. Um, I actually want to try that sometime. I don't know. To me, it looks like it'd be fun. Anyways, non-believers. Freedom for them is doing whatever they want to do, so they think. But they haven't really thought it through. These are opposing views. Even the word freedom has become kind of confusing, right? One man's freedom leads him to take up arms and fight for the freedom of his country. Another man's freedom re- causes him to refuse to fight in the name of freedom. Freedom itself has become confusing without God's structure. Religious freedom. People came to America looking for religious freedom, but of late, all we hear about is freedom choice or free sex. Different understandings of the word freedom. And the reason is because God's word isn't in authority. So what is biblical freedom? You've often heard the phrase, you know, if a person gets out of jail, they're free as a bird. Thank you, you win the prize. Free as a bird, right? Let's talk about what that. What does that mean, free as a bird? Let's go ahead and take the bald eagle for a second. He is my spirit animal. Um, bald eagle. Let's go ahead. Let's look at his abilities. First of all, he can soar up to one half mile high. From that height, he can see a rabbit. We would need binoculars to actually see, very high-powered binoculars, by the way. He can actually fold his wings and descend at a speed of 200 miles per hour. Uh, They can swim and float. Didn't know that until I looked at this up. Um, They mate for life, lay two to three eggs per laying. Their nest, because they live over 20 years, can get to be almost one ton in weight, about 10 feet wide, on the sides of cliffs, all places. Lots of other cool things about them. But they cannot live underwater no matter how much they envy the fish that they catch. Uh, The males can't grow larger than the females. They can't survive without laws protecting their survival. They are making a great comeback, by the way. And they cannot commit adultery. Hardwired in, instinctual. Now here's the thing. They're only free to operate within their specific biosphere, the one God has given them. In that, they're free to be eagles, free to do what what eagles do. They're not free to go beyond the boundaries God has set for them, just like us. And what I'm trying to get at is not only are there physical boundaries, there are moral boundaries. And they're as hard and as solid and as real as the physical boundaries, only we've chosen not to acknowledge them because of where we live. Let's talk about the physical boundary really quick. While we're free to jump off a building, we're not free of the natural consequences that surround the laws of physics. Gravity will take over. The consequences of our actions in the physical world are beyond our freedom of choice. Second, we have limitations to our mental ability. We are not infinite. We are finite. There are boundaries, We can know what what has happened to some degree, but they're not going to see all of it. We aren't going to have complete knowledge. We can know what's happening right now to some degree, but again, because we tend to focus on one thing at a time, we're missing all the other stuff that's going on. We cannot know the future. We cannot know the outcome of a given action or inaction. We're just limited mentally. I think for good reason. God would know what we would do if we had more capability in this. So thirdly, Just as God sets sets physical boundaries and mental boundaries to have our freedom operate within, he also sets boundaries to our moral freedom. Unlike the eagle who lives by instinct, man lives by decisions that he makes every single moment, every single day that are moral. These moral choices are not up to us. They've actually been prescribed to us by God. We know the right choices, been handed the right choices. The question is, does man have the freedom to determine his own moral boundaries or are those boundaries already set in place like gravity? This is the primary difference between Christian worldview and the modern American worldview. We don't believe we can set our own moral code any more than we can set our own boundaries with physical laws. Yes, I can choose to violate the moral code, take God's place if I want to, just as I can choose to jump off of a building. But in either case, the consequences are the same. God's laws will break me. People think they're getting away with moral crimes. You're just setting yourself up for the fall. It's coming. It just isn't happening as instantly as you'd like it. The crimes, the the laws, the sins, the judgment, it is coming. The same as the fall from a building is coming. For man, the moral code is not a matter of choice. It is woven within the fabric of our universe and has been written down for us. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, they weren't ten suggestions or ten options that you can consider to choose from. The moral code was determined by God for man. It is transcendent. It exists above and independently of man, just like the law of gravity and every other created law. Man does not invent these laws. He recognizes them, accepts them, and lives with them with peace and finds freedom in them. Rejecting them is like rejecting reality. It's rejecting truth, it's rejecting justice, it's rejecting love, it's rejecting God himself. We can boast in everything God has done. His physical world has made us, the limitations he put on us mentally, morally, they are good for us because he is a good God. And the sacrifice that he paid demonstrates this. If we do not submit to this, we will basically be devising our own ends We will rejoice, though, in freedom if we actually accept the laws God has given us. But if we don't boast in God's work, we will forget him, as Romans 1 teaches us. We will forget about God. We'll be tempted to make up our own world with its own realities and our own laws. We cannot break God's laws. We can only be broken on them. So the biblical worldview in regard to the universe, God does not hesitate to tell us what to do and what not to do. God's laws are consistent with his love. It's like the mother telling the child not to touch the stove. They know the consistency of disobedience is going to lead them to destruction, so they provide these laws. Don't touch the stove when they're young. If we understand God's moral universe and his laws for the love and good that they are, we embrace them with joy. We do not resist them or see them as impositions. We actually seek them out and live on them like food. Do you seek out God's word? I'm not talking about just reading it to feel right or to feel good about yourself in the morning or feel like God's on your side or because you need a daily dose of conviction. I'm talking about living God's word, taking it and putting wheels on it. Eating it as though it is food, depending upon it for your guidance and your direction, making your choices based on God's word. It's hard. It really is hard. It takes a lot of investigation. Cindy just received inheritance from uh, Grandpa Joe, who's uh, not here today, someplace much better. Actually, he's hearing a great sermon this morning. Grandpa Joe is. But what do we do with that? You know, what do you do with this money? We got to, we're going back to the word of God and say, God, what do I do with this? And we're, we're discussing, we're pulling up verses. I was looking up stuff in Isaiah just recently. That's how you live as a Christian. This is how we walk in his ways. So these three essential views. First, we have to view God, a God who can be trusted. Again, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Secondly, we have to have a view of a universe that actually has moral laws built into it. It is a universe of trustworthy laws so that in all our ways, we can choose his way. We can make, with his help, our path straight. We can actually head towards him, towards righteousness, if we choose him. The third essential view is that of man. And this is probably the most confusing one. Be not wise in your own eyes, verse 7 says. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What is your view of man? I believe a biblical view of man, is not only his glorious nature, created in the image of God, but also man cannot be trusted. Now this has been contended tremendously through the modern psychology, modern philosophies of our time, even going all the way back to the Enlightenment, that man is essentially good. And in fact, look at the most worldviews. They start off with the premise that man is basically good. He'll do the right thing. And there's all this hope built into these uh, utopian societies that never come to pass because it lacks the understanding that man has fallen. Yeah, they were good. God did create us perfectly, but we fell. We got to own that. We've got to walk in it. We've got to learn to bend the knee, not only as a created being, but as a sinner who's fallen from grace. We need to bend the knee twice before God. But all other philosophies, no. You're good the way you are. Man has become the measure of all things. We need to exalt man's position, look for the best in him. Yeah, I agree, look for the best, but expect the worst. Or at least read a history of the 20th century. You'll get a better picture. Man cannot be trusted. The verse is very clear. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. Why don't you listen to what's being said here. A man who is wise in his own eyes neither fears God or turns away from him. In fact, he runs headlong into evil. Pride, as we know, the devil's crippling agenda for us is what kills mankind. So last week, I wanted to kind of take a shot at reasonable reason, you know, how reasonable is our reason? And the reason I want to take a shot at is because it is, in my opinion, here on the West Coast anyway, the greatest obstacle to developing a biblical worldview. If you depend too much on your own genius, if you are wise in your own eyes, there's no way you're going to see God's plan. It's become an idol. Modern man since the Renaissance has become increasingly autonomous. Autonomous increasingly pushing God further and further away, even judging deeds that are like dark, like earthquakes, tsunamis, things like that, Say, how could God possibly exist? They never did that prior to the Enlightenment. People accepted the good and the bad, recognizing we live in a fallen universe, a broken universe. Then they, in their pride, started pointing fingers at God. How could this bad stuff happen, Lord, if you're really God? It is man's arrogance who makes these kinds of statements. They're wise in their own eyes, have actually become judges of God Himself. This overinflated view of our genius makes the biblical worldview very inhospitable to us. For instance, if you've ever dealt with an intoxicated person, <laughs> they're really hard to deal with. Trying to help somebody who's drunk, not kill themselves, you know, not get into the car and drive home, very difficult. And when you talk about somebody who's full of pride, it's very similar. They can't hear. If you remember that quote from Pascal last week, the idea that you can actually communicate to somebody who thinks they already know is impossible. I really like what uh, one of our youth once said. I don't know if I want to share his name because his parents are here today. He's off at college becoming a genius. But anyways, we're talking about someone who's just extremely into themselves. I mean, pride, he said, yeah, that, that guy, he's smoking his own stupid. Love that phrase. It's just... Just one of those, write this down in your notes. You know, pick this in, in his own stupid. Basically, this is the idea that his arrogance, his pride, his, so, his self has so intoxicated that he's breathing it back in and just recycling the whole thing over and over again. This is, and to a huge extent, what Western civilization has moved to in their worship of reason. But it's this... Is our sickness. This is where we fall. And that's why I kind of want to make one more shot at this before we go, um, just to kind of put man back in his place so that he will give God a chance. Put revelation first over and above our reason. So, think about it. What causes quarrels among you? What causes dissension, backfighting? We fight, we argue, we demand based on our limited perspective. And what do we quarrel over? When's the last time you've been in a fight for God? When's the last time your argumentation, your branker got up because you were defending Christ? You were explaining the gospel. Too often, it's all about us. Last Friday, I.D. and I, we looked at 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul puts the quarreling to rest. They were finding about who they're following, Cephas, Apollos, Paul. He says, look, you've forgotten God. You've, re- you've taken on this mantle of following in someone else's banner, a human banner, rather than following after God. Paul argues for God. When you read the scriptures, he's always arguing for God. He's always pushing God forward, declaring his glory, his goodness, and saying there is nothing worth boasting about except God. Where is your boasting? What are you talking about? on a daily basis? What are you sharing with your friends? What are you communicating? Is it about God? The reason it isn't is because you're not depending on Scripture. You're not taking that verse and saying, this is the course of my life. If you did, you'd be saying, look at this. Look at what this is doing in my life. Look at how God has manifested himself to me. That would be the substance of your conversation. Paul argues for God. When's the last time you've argued for God? Set aside your opinions, your wants, your fears, your anger, and take up God's view. I know it's hard. I struggle with this myself, and that's why I'm preaching it. Because we think we know. We think our reason is enough, but our reason has possessed us. If you were to stop after any argument, if you've had an argument this week, just go back and realize how much of your own stupid you were smoking. I don't care how right you were. I bet the attitude shifted into idol worship. I bet the attitude shifted into crucifying your enemy rather than loving your enemy. I bet it shifted from turning the other cheek to damning them to hell. Think about it. Is God involved? Let me punch just a few more holes in this confidence and reason so that you might again give God a chance. Tim Keller wrote a book called, bestseller by the way, The reason for God, belief in an age of skepticism. Who read it? How we started it? You've heard of it. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In it, he argues about reason, you know, how man actually does reason. He talks about this idea that we have three avenues of reason. We have intellectual reasoning, which we all claim we use. We have personal reasoning and social reasoning. Now, intellectual reasoning is, you know, the idea that you do what you were actually taught in speech and debate instead of just going to thisiswhatibelieve.com, you know, and supporting your own views. But actually taking both sides of an argument and looking at it honestly from both sides, that would be intellectual reasoning. Very few people do this, especially in the things they're yelling about the most. In fact, it kind of tames you when you've heard both sides of the argument. Anyway, so this would be intellectual reasoning. However, while we all claim to be intellectuals, because it sounds cool, I guess, I don't know. Lots of syllables. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all claim to be intellectuals, very few of us have actually reasoned through our worldviews, our beliefs, the things that we're standing up for. Most of us, and be honest now, you've taken most of what you know was on the authority of somebody else. Most of what you you didn't personally research the things you're clinging to. You didn't personally investigate. You didn't do experiments on those things. You took it on the authority of somebody else and you claimed it as intellectual. Is it? Man isn't flawed. Man doesn't make mistakes. Again, I'm just trying to punch holes in reasoning. Reasoning is absolutely essential. We need it. It is created by us. It is given to us by God. It's part of God's very nature. But we have turned it into an idol and we need to put it back in its place. Personal reasoning no one only uses intellectual reasoning. By the way, you almost always use all three in everything. <clears throat> Personal reasoning basically is the interpretation of life events. If you're suffering, two people can go through the same suffering and come out with two very opposite conclusions. One person says, God kept me alive during my suffering. The other person says, to hell with God. Why did he let this happen to me? Personal interpretation of the event. Same with good things as well. I was, I'm so happy. I can't believe how blessed I am. I'm so happy, who needs God? Personal interpretation of of events. And then you have social reasoning. This is the idea that we accept beliefs of the people that we want to accept us. In fact, most people who change their position start here. They didn't change their position on a, a given topic because they researched the facts, took both sides of the argument, weighed it out, saw which one was the most credible argument. They changed it because they fell into friends that have a different view and they wanted to look at it and then they started listening differently everyone uses all three give me a couple examples here the accusations of a social humanist you know someone who basically believes that you're just a reasoning machine nothing more just matter he might look at you and say you wouldn't be a christian if you were born in iran and from that position he's saying look you're just a product of your family's upbringing just because you're here in Bible country that you've become a Christian. If you were born in Iran, that would happen. I, on the other hand, have taken the intellectual path and chosen my beliefs as a social humanist. Of course, your response should be what? You wouldn't be a social humanist if you were born in Iran. And they probably wouldn't. The idea is really simple. We have this arrogance about us, and it is a Western thing that we have somehow bypassed personal reasoning and social reasoning and we're now all these intellectual reasons for our belief systems. It's just simply not true. The atheist thinks he or she is using intelligent reasoning by taking his positions. Americans as a whole (coughs) is under this delusion that the worldview isn't religious. That somehow perfect objectivity is a myth. Talk to any scientist and they'll tell you that. Christian principal sitting in a school has a kid brought into his office and the kid has cheated. And the Christian looks at his worldview, which he got from Scripture, and tells the child, this is wrong. The social humanist principal has a child who's caught cheating. The child's brought into the office and the principal says, this is wrong. Different set of assumptions, but still assumptions. Different reasons for why it's wrong still based on assumptions about reality and the way reality works. No one is neutral. Everyone lives out their worldview assumptions religiously. The atheist as much as the Christian. Blaise Pascal, he described the completely neutral man this way. He said, the completely neutral man is someone who has to doubt literally everything. And at the end of his doubting, will have to end up doubting his own existence. There's no place. They have to, if you're going to assume some things about reality and build your worldview on that, you have to stand on that, at least to be honest about it. You can't say, well, I just don't know. He actually said this, no one can go that far. And I maintain that a perfectly genuine skeptic has never existed. Now, many people think, fate, I know I'm over, but I got a page left and by golly, I'm sharing. it. All right. Buckle in. All right. I can cut a little bit of this out. All right. So um, many people think that faith and reason are mutually exclusive. And this is something that actually came about in, uh, I'd say, the last 500 years through philosophy. And it's, it's really ridiculous. If you've ever uh, seen the painting by Raphael, um, was it the um, School of Athens. And you got Socrates and Plato right in the middle, right? And then all the other... Um, great religious leaders and prophets alongside worldview leaders, right? And Plato's pointing up. Socrates is pointing down, right? And it's this idea that our understanding of reality comes from above. That was Plato's idea. It ruled the church theologically for a thousand years that there was this Neoplatonic view that We have this overarching God who makes everything clear, who defines everything for us, who has basically aligned what we are looking at. Whereas Aristotle took the opposite approach and says, no, if we study what's here, then we will discover God. Now, these two views are opposite directions, but they're both accepted as truth, at least back then. Both accepted as equally valuable, equal reasoning. But for some reason, in our modern times, People started thinking that, well, if you believe in faith issues, it's because you don't have any good reasons for it, which is the furthest thing from the truth. And if you are reasonable, you will believe in empirical data only, and that'll be the solid foundation. Now, both are a manipulation of the words and produce very false conclusions, but this is the philosophy of our time. Every thinking person assumes certain things of faith about God, the universe, man. For instance, Karl Marx. Karl Marx assumed societies would evolve. Now, he took this from Hegel, but he took out the religious part of it. And he assumed societies would evolve. He assumed leaders would evolve and be able to manage the affairs of millions of people. But what actually happened? 20th century comes along. People try this worldview out. Come to find out the leaders of these worldviews weren't as evolved as he had thought. And he had to actually end up killing 150 million to defend the worldview of communism. Communism is a philosophy of life based on assumptions about man, the world, and the absence of God. It is a religion, religiously followed, faith-based in certain worldview assumptions. Another way of looking at this, and I will cut corners, although I hate cutting Baldwin's quote out. It's brilliant. Anyways, if you want a good book to read, there's a book called... um, the deadliest monster suggest you read if you want to get into worldviews. It's a literary study of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde and Frankenstein. It's it's great. Uh, it will get you at this if you like those stories. It's all, all the better. But anyways, um, dogma. You've heard of people being called dogmatic before. Oh, you're just dogmatic Christian. Basically, you've turned off your bra- brain and you've just assumed these assumptions and ran with them. Now that's thrown at us quite often, and uh, sometimes rightfully so. You know, to be honest. The naturalist does the same thing, though, and that was the quote from Baldwin. The atheist does the same thing, too. and I'm going to skip ahead here. The atheist's faith in science as the only way to know is precisely that, faith. Think about it. If the atheist comes up with the conclusion that the only reality is material reality, that there is no such thing as the Spirit, is no such thing as a God who, Jesus said, is Spirit, there is no such thing as a human soul, only matter, then they've already eliminated the possibility of ever finding such a thing. In fact, the very word supernatural (laughs) means that it's above nature. You're not going to find it using empirical resources. It's like the blind man or the the colorblind man saying, I don't believe in the color red because I've never seen it. When Christians point this out and claim personal, soul knowledge of Christ. The dogmatic atheist faithfully claims that those who believe in God are deceived. But ever since Adam and Eve, countless men and women have testified that they've seen God, that they've touched God, that they've heard from God. One even claimed to wrestle with God. G.K. Chesterton says there is a choking cataract of human testimony in favor of the supernatural. The atheist must, on faith, reject this cataract of physical and spiritual experiences as myth, illusion, and lies. Now ask yourself a question. Who's being more dogmatic? The Christian or the atheist? Chesterton continues, The Christian believing in miracles accepts them, rightly or wrongly, because they have testimonial evidence of them. The disbeliever in miracles deny them rightly or wrongly because they have a doctrine against them. Which one's more dogmatic? All worldviews are religious and start with faith assumptions, even the atheist. The only question is which faith assumptions are the most reasonable, those created by man or those given to us by God? In, it, it really just depends on this question. Are you going to be wise in your own eyes, or are you going to decide to trust Him with all of your heart? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. Let's pray.